0: The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra-wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional-level expertise to the high-paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to The Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with The Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California on the Central Coast here. And uh, before we begin our show today, I want to remind you that there's lots of different things to explore, resources associated with The Wealth Formula Podcast at wealthformula.com. So if you're only listening to the podcast, you haven't visited the site, uh, you're missing out because there are things to download, free books, videos, webinars, things like that. Also, it's a place where you go to sign up for some of our lists. For example, if you are an accredited investor and you are interested in participating in some deal flow and getting off the sidelines and using some of this information that we have. Go to WealthFormula.com and sign up for our investor club. Also, there is a group, a private group, called Wealth Formula Network. Wealth Formula Network is essentially our online community. It starts with a course. The course is really good. A bunch of familiar names on there, like Tom Wheelwright and Kenny McElroy. Uh, you learn a lot of the basics, and then it moves into Our community, where we are very interactive on the Facebook page, but probably more importantly uh, in our biweekly Zoom conference calls, which are very—I'm just so impressed at the level of conversation in those. I feel like I, you know, I feel like I learn something every day that we do those. So check that out. That's at wealthformularoadmap.com. Avoid the um, or uh, ignore the uh, silly video sales thing. It was written by some uh, internet marketer and you know, whatever. You guys don't need that. You get the point. Anyway, again, wealthformularoadmap.com. Today, we are going to do yet another episode of Ask Buck. We try to do these quarterly and well, I think the quarter is just about up and it's time to get on the ball again. And so we've got a lot of interesting questions, so we're probably going to end up with more than one show. We'll probably end up with uh, multiple Ask Buck episodes for this quarter. But you know what? This stuff is, uh, I think, some of the more valuable information, for, especially for people who are relatively new to the Wealth Formula ecosystem, because we go through a lot of basics and then we define a lot of things that we sort of take for granted on the show. And so make sure to listen this week, even uh, there's just some really good questions. And so we will get to those right after these messages. Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com accesswealthaviation.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I am here myself without a guest today because I am doing an episode of Ask Buck. So lots of really, really interesting questions, and I think it's an opportunity for us to learn together. And let me start, you know, this week I'm gonna start, I prefer these questions that are recorded, so I'm going to do as many as we can uh, within, you know, a reasonable amount of time and then move on to uh, the rest of the next week. Let me start out with a question from George. George, here you go.
1: Hello, Buck. George from North Texas. I'm invested in two of your Western Wealth uh, deals. A question about um, some legislation working its way through the House right now that I heard about that would make it uh, illegal to use uh, an IRA or self-directed IRA to invest in any private placement uh, or single member llc and uh, furthermore would make uh, would require anyone who has ever done so to liquidate uh, that private placement investment within 2 years wondering uh, one if if you're aware of this and uh, two whether that would affect our ability to uh, participate in uh, western wealth opportunities in the future uh, or affect existing Western wealth, uh, investments. Uh, appreciate uh, your thoughts on this and, uh, thank you for your podcast. Bye.
0: George, great question. Yes, I am aware of the legislation. So first of all, let's start with this. Everything that we are seeing right now is legislation, right? It is not law and we need to see what actually does become law. So that's first and foremost, you know I'm going to start a lot of these uh, questions with the same reminder which is that I am not a CPA and I'm not a lawyer so don't take any of this as legal or financial advice. You are right though in that if this law that is uh, currently being proposed in its current form if that were to happen you would no longer be able to invest in private placements with your self-directed IRA. Effectively, uh, it targets anything where there's a minimum investment, and um, or and or requires you to be uh, accredited. So effectively, I mean that is pretty much everything that is a private placement in any sort of way. So, so yeah, absolutely, that is a concern. As for you know current investments that you already have deployed right now. The legislation says that you would have to have that liquidated by 2024, and as you might imagine, um, that's not a lot of time for liquidation to occur in the type of stuff that we do. Now, I will say that I, you know, I have to imagine there will be a way for people not to be penalized for lack of liquidation in this. Uh, I can't imagine that there would be, you know, no way to deal with that kind of stuff. So we'll see what the law says. Uh you know what? Uh it's it's uh this is round 1 and and who knows where it ends up by the end. It could be dropped off completely. And if it doesn't, well, there are some potential workarounds which we're not going to get into today, but you know, things that involve selling your shares um you know, also there's also ways to get valuations on those and potentially uh, you know, sell them from your IRA to, you know, someone else or maybe yourself or whatever. But we're not going to talk about that so much right now because it is so early and we don't really know where the law is going to end up. The bigger question is, you know, does this bill pass? And the thing is, a lot of times you look at the stuff and you think, well, you know what? That's just posturing for negotiations because, that's asking for way too much, and there's no way that's going to get through. But this one is a little bit tricky, I have to tell you. And the reason is, if you think about it, who benefits from this law? Who benefits from this going through? Because, I mean, it's so strange, right? Why would you not be able to control your own money? I mean, why, why does anybody care about that? And why should the government have a hand in that? These are all very good questions, but if you look at who would ultimately benefit from your inability to self-direct, it's Wall Street, right? Because effectively, it creates a situation where, you know, if you can't invest uh, into alternatives, as they call them, then you're going to have to invest into the publicly traded markets and buy equities and bonds, and that's dumps in more and more money into Wall Street. So, the point of me bringing all this up is that, you know, a lot of times I'm like, well, you know, we'll see where it goes and I'm not too worried about that cuz there's going to be a lot of, you know, political lobbyists and stuff who'll probably get in the way, but the lobbyists here are probably on the side of Wall Street and that's what worries me about it. Now, one thing I should point out, which was pointed out uh in our Wealth Formula Network Group by one of our uh, esteemed members there, which I thought uh, was very important is that right now the self-directed IRAs are specifically the target. The legislation does not refer to solo 401ks, you know, these things, uh, um, QRPs or, you know, whatever you want to call them. And so they are not currently affected by this legislation as it stands. So, you know, those of you who are using solo 401ks would theoretically not be affected. And, you know, there's precedence for that. So if you look at, you know, laws regarding self-directed IRAs versus solo 401ks, they're different, right? If you have a solo 401k, you're not subject to the um, UDFI and UBIT and all that stuff. So they can have different rules. And I think, uh, you know, the 401ks being in the purview of, of corporate America might make a difference and so I guess the question is, what do you do, right? And again, I'm not a CPA. I'm not going to give you any advice. But if it were me and I don't have a, an IRA or a 401k, but if I had an IRA, I'd be trying to figure out right now that it how could I, if I needed to uh, convert my uh, self-directed IRA uh, into a solo 401k, how could I do that? And there's plenty of options out there uh, that people talk about all the time. And just to be clear, I'm not saying to do that, but it's something that you may wanna do a little research on. From my understanding, again, my little knowledge in this area is that if you have a self-directed IRA, if it's not a Roth conversion already, that it's actually not terribly difficult to get into a a type of solo 401k model. Look into it. But finally, again, uh, I would just say also, beyond the fact that this is not tax and legal advice, I wouldn't panic just yet. Um, There's a lot of scary stuff in this legislation. It's going to need to be ironed out. We just need to see what actually comes to fruition. All right. but Good question, though. Next question is from Jason. Hey, Buck. Uh, I have a single-family rental home that I was thinking about selling and taking the proceeds and putting into a passive multifamily the question I had is Can I put, do that in a 1031 exchange or should I just sell it and pay the taxes before a potential multifamily investment? And then, third, I was also thinking about just refinancing and increasing my cash flow and hanging on for the long haul. Um, just wanted to get your thoughts, a lot of moving parts, but uh, appreciate the help. Thank you. Great question again, Jason. As far as the you know the whole refi option. Obviously, it's a personal preference. If you like the asset, keep it refi. That's certainly not a, a bad way to go. But right now, as far as you know, the 1031 exchange issue. The good news is we still have this benefit um, right now of 100 percent of 100 percent bonus depreciation. Uh, so when you put together these uh, cost segregation analysis. Uh, along with bonus depreciation, it actually sometimes uh, be pretty clear that you don't really need the 1031. Again, reminding you that I'm not a CPA or a lawyer or financial advisor. Let's let's just do a little case study though because I think that that, that's pretty kosher for me to do. So let's say you bought a house and it was a $100,000 house and you know, you did what you normally would do. Hopefully you do. You'd take some depreciation on that. Say you took $20,000 in the depreciation so far. So your basis is now $80,000. And upon sale, uh, you would be responsible for the, not only the capital gains, but the recapture of depreciation. Now recapture uh, is typically uh, at a tax rate of twenty five percent. So on that twenty thousand dollars of recapture, a twenty thousand dollars of, of basis that you took in depreciation, you would have to pay, you know, uh, about five thousand dollars in 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 recapture. Now you sell the house and say you sold it for one hundred and fifty thousand, nice profit, right? So you have fifty thousand dollars of capital gains too. So if you do nothing else, you would have that $50,000 of capital gains that you'd have to pay on. And then you would have, and so that's a, you know, at a, a cap gains rate of, of 20%, right? Uh, at a at a tax rate of 20%, you'd owe about $10,000. So you got that $10,000 of capital gains tax, and then the recapture, we calculated uh, came out to about 5000 So with recapture and capital gains, you'd have about $15,000 of taxes to pay uh, if you did nothing else, okay? So, you know, obviously the traditional thing in real estate is to do a 1031 exchange, like exchange, you don't pay anything, and, you know, we go off into the sunset and, and keep doing that until you die, and then there's a reset of basis. But now let's say, okay, you can't do a 1031 and you want to do a limited partnership and that kind of thing. So let's say instead of doing nothing and just eating the tax, you put that uh, capital gains and principal in total, $150,000, right? The $100,000 from before, the $50,000 of profit back into a limited partnership in multifamily real estate. Now, Uh, Let's be conservative, and this is just based on what we've, you know, seen within our group. Let's say that you get 70% depreciation from that investment um, because of the cost segregation and bonus depreciation. So that's been, you know, my experience has been that that's been anywhere from 70% all the way up to 100%, but let's use 70% there. So, You invested your um, $150,000 and you got 70% depreciation. You get a K-1 and that shows a loss now because of that 70% of $105,000. Now, guess what? Your total capital gains and recapture was only $25,000. So in this example, any gains you would have... Would be offset by depreciation losses from your uh, investment into your limited partnership investment, and you'd have, you know, still some suspended losses that you could still use for other stuff. But again, you know, I'm not a CPA, and all I'm doing is running the numbers on a theoretical example. So depending on your depreciation and gains, and you know, leverage certainly plays a part in this. Um, the numbers could vary, and you could certainly. Uh, you know, you certainly want to consult with your tax professional on this matter as well, but you know what, run the numbers, right. And use, you know, just as simple modeling. And I think you'd get a pretty good idea, but, uh, the bottom line is that at least while we have 100% bonus depreciation that we can take on our cost segregation analyses, selling something and investing looks like it could be as good an option as, um, you know, or even better than a 1031 exchange. All right. Let's see. Let's get on to the next question it's from Jimmy.
2: Hi, bud. Just got a quick question for you regarding routines. Um, do you practice any particular daily routines that, uh, you know, are intended to put you in an optimal mental, physical, or emotional state? I'm um, thinking, for example, like uh, Hal Elrod's uh, Miracle Morning routine that um, Robert Kiyosaki has uh, has talked about that, you know, has elements of meditation uh, affirmation and visualization exercise you know, reading journaling or, or anything sort of in this category is that something that uh, you do on a daily basis um and uh, if you do that sort of stuff do you get up early are you an early riser or are you more like a night owl somewhere between thanks for your time and all you do to share your knowledge with us Buck.
0: jimmy Uh, well, I'm definitely not a night owl. I tend to turn into a pumpkin at about 10 o'clock at the latest. So, and also, you know, I, although I wish I could say I did do something special, I don't do anything like the Hal Elrod Miracle Morning, but like you said, you know, I know a lot of people swear by it. I know Robert Kiyosaki told me he does it himself. So, so I think there's probably something to it. I do think that routine is important. Uh, but being, you know, in my case, uh, a single dad with kids half the time, uh, it hasn't certainly been something that I've been able to implement very well, especially as of, as of, uh, recent, uh, year or two here, but I do wake up early. I mean, I generally wake up uh, at 7am at the latest and my six year old will sometimes wake me up at 5am. So I guess you will, um, you know, sometimes make me more productive in that regard, you know, I work out, um, with personal trainers, uh, three times a week. I do this thing called the genius of flexibility. Uh, it's kind of a little culty type thing, but it's, it's, it's interesting. I've got like three trainers kind of in it's resistance and, and, um, you know, flexibility training and, and a lot of strength training and stuff. It's pretty cool. I used to hike several times per week. And I think that that's, uh, been very useful for me, especially over the pandemic. I'm sort of burned out on that. Um, I have a lot more, you know, weird routines with my diet and stuff now. I mean, I do intermittent fasting and that's based in, you know, uh, the health things that are coming out about intermittent fasting. What is intermittent fasting? Well, basically I usually eat only um, for about a window of about six hours in a day. Sometimes it's as little uh, frankly is, is like three or four hours. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, that seems to have some benefits in terms of weight loss and energy and things like that. I also take a lot of supplements. <laughs> I've become like a crazy, you know, supplement guy, but a couple ones that I think I would highlight here are ones that are in some of the longevity studies that are out there. NMR, which increases NAD levels. I take a lot of vitamin D. By the way, if you've never gotten your vitamin D levels checked, have them checked out because everybody seems to have low vitamin D. And uh vitamin D actually does quite a bit for your energy levels if it's not normal. So mine was kind of really low. And so I started taking it, I noticed a big difference from that. And then there's also a supplement called spermidine. Now that's a terrible name, I know, and um, it doesn't do what you'd think it would do. Uh, it's actually another supplement that, that's in the top, in the uh, longevity literature and it's related to something called autophagy of senescent cells, which is basically like you know dead cells and stuff like that, getting rid of those uh, quicker. You know, by the way, I think this book uh, from David Sinclair, I think it's called lifespan. Uh it's a really good book. I highly recommend it. Very entertaining as well. If, especially if you're middle-aged like me and you're trying to figure out how to live longer and stuff like that. This guy's a really smart uh, Harvard uh Harvard uh biologist and uh, he's he's doing great work over there and I follow him on Twitter and stuff too. So check that out, Lifespan. Now, although I don't have a work routine, I will say that, you know, I think one of the things that differentiates me from a lot of people, uh, is that I, I am very, very good with time management. And honestly, like, I think that's one of the most critical things, um, uh, out there is just being able to manage your time, however you do it. I mean, I, I honestly spend a lot of my time just working on my phone. See I'm working from wherever I, wherever I am during the day. And then, you know, I don't feel like it spills into any hours that I don't need it to spill into. Anyway, that's about all I got. I wish I had something uh, that was more useful to the audience. But if you figure out something that works for you, let me know. But I can't I can't really wake up any earlier and have much of a routine because because uh, of the single dad thing. Uh, let's see. I think we have uh, time for one more for this session. So let's go with a question from John Hurwitz.
2: Hi, Buck. This is John in Santa Rosa, California. I have a question about Uh, suspended passive losses, and offsetting active income. Um, I'm aware that normally this is not the case uh, unless you're a real estate professional, which I'm not, so I have banked uh, quite a bit of suspended losses uh, like probably uh, many other members of the group. My understanding and my question is uh, when an asset sells, and for example there's a capital gain of $100,000 at that point, uh, then the equal amount of suspended passive losses can then be released. And when they're released, they. my accountant tells me they can, at that point, offset active income. It's kind of like they go to their highest and best use, and instead of offsetting the capital gains from the sale, they offset active income, which is more tax-beneficial to me. Uh, and Then, of course... You, you still have to deal with the capital gains tax uh, on the profit, uh, but all things considered, the ability to use suspended passive losses at the time of a sale, having them be unreleased and then offset active uh, income, I just want to get confirmation that that, that is the case, because that is not talked about very much. Thank you for uh, all you do, and thanks for taking the
0: time with this question. John, thanks for that question. Really, really good question. I got to say, we have like the smartest group. I mean, even these questions that we get are just so much better than what you get on other podcasts and stuff, uh, in my opinion. But uh, John, let me do this first. Let me review what you're talking about so that everybody's on the same page. And let me also, again, tell you this disclaimer, I'm not a CPA and I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a tax advisor. I'm not anything, just a guy with uh, some opinions and uh, who does a little, little little research myself. So what John's talking about, so one of the great advantages of real estate investing, especially these days because of cost segregation analysis and bonus depreciation combination, is there are um, significant paper losses you know, vis-a-vis that depreciation that you can, uh, you can theoretically take advantage of. But one of the really important things to remember is that, you know, income is classified in various different buckets, right? It's either you got passive income, you've got active income, uh, and then there's portfolio income, which is like stocks and bonds. Now, my understanding is that you can only use portfolio losses to offset portfolio gains And similarly, you can only use passive losses to offset passive gains. So if you're not classified as a real estate professional, as John pointed out, you can't use real estate depreciation losses against your earned income from your job. So you, you know, so many people uh, who invest in real estate end up creating a whole wall of suspended depreciation losses that they really can't use to offset any passive gains Uh, And they basically have to wait until there's, you know, passive income uh, to offset, or there's a liquidation of one of those passive assets. So again, let's show a little model. So say you have $500,000 in suspended losses because you've been investing in all sorts of limited partnerships and they keep sending you K-1s and you can't, you know, you can't use that against the earned income that you make. You're making, you know... A few hundred thousand dollars a million dollars a year whatever you can't use that $500,000 against that earned income now all of a sudden one of the investment properties that you have it sells and you have a $100,000 passive gain now you should be able to offset those gains with the accrued uh losses that you have all of those suspended losses and we have called this phenomena the golden hamster wheel for this reason right it's like you just build up these walls of of depreciation losses and every time there's gains in income you keep offsetting them and not having to pay taxes on now what john is asking is a is actually a fairly nuanced and complicated question he's asking if you have that hundred thousand dollar capital gains do the suspended losses have to offset the capital gains specifically, like surgically, or could they or, or do they actually offset ordinary income for that year? Now, John, according to my CPA, because I'm not going to give you tax advice, you are correct. So the offset is not surgically target, target your capital gains. The ordinary income is always uh, essentially, uh, you know, offset first. So, and you are right, people don't talk about this much, but it is an additional perk of that those uh, depreciation losses that you have. So, if you have five hundred thousand dollars of ordinary income, and say all of the sudden you have hundred thousand dollar capital gain, and you have suspended losses to offset that hundred thousand dollar gain. You would pay ordinary income taxes on $400,000, not $500,000. So again, that is doing what you're saying. It is essentially offsetting your active income there. And then you would pay a capital gains rate on $100,000. Anyway, that is a very, very good question. It's uh, one of those things that I think only this group come up with. So I appreciate that question, John, and hopefully hopefully my... uh, theoretical answer from a non-CPA, non-tax professional person like me is helpful. But yes, I concur based on what my CPA is telling me. Anyway, I think that's it for this week. We don't want to overdo it with uh, questions in one week. So we'll just have some final comments right after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Ask Buck. I'm going to leave you with a little bit of commentary here because I think, you know, we had uh, an interesting conversation on Wealth Formula Network uh, the other day about, you know, how do you get started and how do you create this plan and how do you feel confident about it if you're a newbie to this space? Here's the problem, right? The problem is that there's no silver bullet. By definition, what we are doing is talking about personal finance. And what we understand in the ethos of this show is that personal finance is very personal. And the problem with you going to a a a coach or a personal financial advisor or whatever, well, first of all, with the personal financial advisors, the financial advisors rarely have, they're not going to give you advice that's based purely on know, the reality of things because they are driven by assets under management. Also, there's this uh, issue that, frankly, not all financial advisors who are used to dealing with stocks and bonds and all that kind of stuff are going to know much at all about, you know, uh, about real estate and the things that come here. So what we're talking about is very different kind of investing that really is uh is not familiar to everybody. Now, the problem with coaches, in my opinion, is that financial coaches usually wouldn't be coaching if they were wealthy because wealthy, super wealthy people don't have time to coach. It's you know, one on one coaching, frankly, is not going to be terribly profitable. Right. So that's another problem. So I'm not a big fan of the coaching type situations because I think one of the principles that's important to me is to not look for financial answers and advice from people who make a lot less money than me. I think that's a it's a pretty good rule to live by. So, then what do you do? Well, the reality is the whole thing is a big grind. The whole thing is a big grind and all you can do is continue to educate yourself. I think these peer groups are very very important. The peer groups are, you know, like wealth formula network uh, I know Jim Pfeiffer and those guys also have left field investors. And, you know, these groups are extraordinarily important. And what I would suggest is, you know, when you are starting out to find some of these groups and really just take your plan out there and, you know, start uh, having people poke holes in it, have your peers poke holes in it. That's the kind of group you want to find. So that would be what I would suggest because I think a lot of people are in that situation, especially when they first get into this uh, you know, alternative personal finance space. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Hopefully, I will see uh, many of you at the Dallas event. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.
2: Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.
0: Worried about saving too little too late for retirement?